We've been studying in the recent weeks the feasts of Israel as listed in Leviticus 23, if you want to turn there. And we're doing this on the heels of our uh, celebration of the resurrection of Christ because much of the feasts of Israel point to all that Christ has accomplished for us by the cross and provided for us in his grace. And we've looked at the first few feasts. Um, three of the feasts are the spring feast, Passover, unleavened bread, and the feast of first fruits. Um, are the, and the feast of Pentecost are the, are the spring festivals. Today we come to the fall festivals. There's a gap of several months, four months approximately, before we approach the fall festivals. And they are the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These feasts are celebrated in the uh, seventh month, as you'll see, which is our September, October approximately. And let's go ahead and read here, if, we, uh, if you would please, and if I'd get there. Leviticus 23. And notice in verse 23 through 25, in the first of these fall feasts, it's the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial, a blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now that's a summary of the Feast of Trumpets, and it was on the, on the first of the seventh month. And then if you jump down to verse 26 here, you'll see the second feast mentioned here is the Day of Atonement. Verse 26 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls, which means to humble yourself, and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And so there we have that on the, on the seventh month, the tenth of, of the month is the Day of Atonement. And then five days later, if you jump down to verse 33 in this chapter, we find the Feast of Tabernacles, which says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And so you can see, just like the spring feasts were related by way of time, they're connected to each other, so these fall feasts are connected as well. The first one on our list here is in Leviticus 23, is the Feast of Trumpets. And it involves the, the memorial blowing of trumpets, it involves a holy convocation, which is a sacred meeting, and it involves a time of rest. Uh, as we see here, they should, you shall afflict your souls, you shall humble yourselves, which means they should take time to consider their walk with God. Now we recognize in the scripture that we see God often used trumpets for various reasons. In Numbers chapter 10, and we won't turn this morning for sake of time, but we find four reasons God instructed them to use trumpets for. It was for the gathering of the people, we find in Numbers 10. It was to direct the people in their moves when they were to pick up camp and move. It was to direct the people in their, in their move from one place to another as God led them. It was used in going to war, obviously, the most frequent, the common one we think of. And it was also used in the for, according to verse 10 in that chapter, for the appointed feast and the beginning of months. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something they, they blew for direction and they blew for celebration. And here we see in the Feast of Trumpets, it was a special month. It was a special celebration, a time of reflection. And that's probably because it was, a, was attached to the Day of Atonement, this most, one of the most serious of the Feast of Israel that was upcoming, the time when, they would, when Israel would consider their sins for the year and God would deal with their sins for the year. They had this on their first of, their, of this new year, the civil new year, they had this reflection. And we know trumpets are going to be used in the future. 
aren't they? You know, we're, we're look, as Christians, as believers, we're listening for the sound of a trumpet. And we're told in the rapture passages such as 1 Thessalonians 4 that the trumpet's going to sound. Verse 16 says, the 1 Thessalonians 4, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And so we're listening for that. This could happen any moment. The return of Christ for his church, believers, is imminent. It could happen any moment. And God will also use, then, several years later, seven years or so later, uh, the trumpet to regather Israel when he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem and he regathers his people fully to the promised land. And in that passage discussing that in Matthew 24, Jesus said, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven and the other. And so the trumpet was significant in the life of Israel. But this was significant because it was symbolic of the new year. It was on the first, first day, which is their civil new year. Now, Israel has a couple of new years. They have a religious new year. But here they have the their, their civil new year, the beginning of their year, and they were to consider the Lord. And in Numbers 29, 1 through 6, lists the detail. We won't go there because it basically lists the sacrifices that are mentioned here. The offering made by fire to the Lord is mentioned here in verse 25, and the details of that are mentioned in Numbers 29, but the, but the significant thing is both passages mention a holy convocation, a sacred assembly, a time where the where the people of God would gather together to worship their God and consider their God. It was a day of rest. It was a day to afflict their souls, and which, which involved a time of spiritual focus and reflection. And so for their new year, it was this, this blowing of the trumpets, this feast of the trumpets, a specific feast, was a time that they were called to consider their walk with God. It was a time of reflection, maybe a time of reckoning and new, new beginnings. And tradition tells us that their new year was similar to ours. You know, in our new year celebration in, in, in t- today, you know, we often consider and reflect on the past year and consider the, the upcoming year. You know, we make our resolutions, so to speak, and, you know, considering what's, what's happened in the past year or the opportunities of the upcoming year. But often our resolutions focus on, you know, diet, you know, losing weight, health, you know, being more committed to a healthy diet. Maybe we're focused on relationships, or maybe on our bucket list priorities or projects and, you know, the things, things we got to get done this year and accomplished. We just, we resolve, you know, as we consider the new year, the, how to use our time better and those type of things. But here, this piece of trumpets was different. It was a time of spiritual reflection. That was our focus. It wasn't about how many, how many more fields they could get plowed this year, how many more cattle they could, or sheep they could, they could produce this year. It wasn't about their portfolio. And in, in those type of things, it was about God. It was about their walk with God. It was, and they reflect on the past year, their, their walk with God, or maybe lack of walk with God, and the coming oppor- year opportunity to draw near him, to walk with him, to live with him. And this was a special consideration because Israel had been given a warning concerning these, this, this day in, their Old Testament times and when they walked with God. And before Moses left the earth and before Israel went in to conquer the Holy Land, um, God gave them several warnings. It was an ultimatum in reality, which really simply speaks that they're going to reap what they sow. And he says this. This is a little lengthier, but in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. 
But, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Now, a blessing and a cursing. On one hand, there, there is joy and delight. God would, would sustain them, would care for them, would, would be their God, would watch over them, and, and they would have rest in the land. But if they turned from the Lord, they would surely perish. God would judge them. And he did. And, that was that, and, and, and that's just the basic concept we find throughout scriptures, but it was a specific warning given to Israel in regards to following his word and his instructions and his leading. And maybe it's this that they would consider, these warnings and these opportunities they would consider as they faced the Day of Atonement, the day in which God would deal with the sins of Israel for the year. They would wonder, is God going to judge us this year? Is he, gonna, is he going to forgive us this year? Is he going to extend his mercy to us? Or have we come to the point where he is going to say, enough's enough, and it's time for discipline, which he often did throughout Israel's history. I think, and by way of application, that's a good lesson for our, for our consideration. And we don't have to wait for January 1st to do it, to consider our walk with God and in, in our opportunity to enjoy him. I'm reminded earlier in Deuteronomy, this verse, one of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? And this is something we should consider every day. What does he require of you? And he says this, But to fear the Lord your God, that's an awesome respect for God, respect for his word, for who he is, God our creator and our savior. Secondly, to walk in his ways, that is to follow his ways, his word, his directives, and to love him. And fourthly, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Basic, isn't it? But we lose sight of that sometimes. And that's why they had, I believe, the Feast of Trumpets, to reorient themselves to what God expected for them. He wanted to walk with them. And mankind has forgotten today, we have drifted so far from this concept in our culture today to recognize that our Creator created us to enjoy Him. God isn't a God like the world likes to depict Him as some judge with a big stick looking around waiting for opportunities to swat people to club them over the head, to trip them up, to make their life miserable. No, God's a God of love and, and grace. In the Old Testament, the word for grace was loving kindness, and he loved to show it. He delighted to show favor and kindness and provide for Israel. In fact, many of the feasts we have studied have been in regards to harvest. There are times of harvest, and, it was a, and those feasts were a recognition that God's the one who produced the harvest. He's the one who provided the water, made the harvest grow to provide food for them. And there were times in Israel's history when they neglected their God when they drifted away from this directive and God, and, and God brought lean years to them in those years. In fact, we find in the last three books of the Old Testament a reference to, don't you see what's going on? Don't you recognize the sparseness in your life? And that's directly related to these promises. There's a sparseness in your life. There's a leanness. And for us, it would be a leanness of joy and, 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 and purpose and meaning because we've forgotten our God. So we might ask ourselves then, how, how do we pursue these things? Really, how does this translate? You know, this is the challenging verses, encouraging verses. What does God use to draw us nearer to himself? If we're going to take this seriously, 
if we're going to blow the trumpet when we get home today and sit down and, and afflict ourselves, humble ourselves, in theory, which isn't a bad idea, by the way, what does it involve? Well, we know the things that God uses to draw us to himself is his word, first of all, isn't it? That's obvious. That's why we're here this morning. In Joshua, shortly after Moses gave them their blessing or cursing warning or encouragement, whichever way you want to take it, he said this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. And that's success in the eyes of God, by the way, not in the eyes of man. The book of the law shall not depart. And we know throughout Scripture we're told to, to, that we're, we're to have a relationship with the Word, and not just to know it factually, but to know it intimately, to read it for the purpose of living it. And we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to blow our trumpets in our lives, what's my relationship to the Word of God? Because our relationship to the Bible reflects our relationship to the Lord. I don't care how much theory you have, how much you, you, you may appear to call out to the Lord, how many times a day you might formally pray. If we don't have a relationship with the Bible, our, our spiritual walk is lean. Because that's how we know the Lord. That's how he reveals himself to us. That's how we learn of his goodness and his greatness, his, his, his love, and of all his great character. But he also uses prayer, doesn't he? Because that's how we talk back to God. God communicates through his words. It's kind of simple. And it's just a good reminder. These are simple reminders, aren't they? The importance of prayer. Whether it's personal in your life or corporate as a church, we're told to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which I, mean, which I think is a time to, to cry on God's shoulder. We talk to him in response to him. Do we not? Through prayer. I like this verse in Isaiah 26, 9 that says, With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the earth world will learn righteousness. That's a tremendous verse, isn't it? So God uses his word. He uses prayer. He also uses time with God's people. I think that's one of the most neglected often in our lives today. We, get such, we live such busy lives. And the Hebrew people were reminded of that. In Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. And the day is approaching. Because our world's getting worse and worse, isn't it? it is, apostasy is going on. But I think this forsaking not only refers to maybe going to church, to, to corporately fellowship around the Word of God, but it involves becoming a family. That's what I think this refers to. It, call, it refers to fellowship, spending time with one another, enjoying life together as a family of believers, serving the Lord together. And so that's, that was the Feast of Trumpets. It was a time to reflect on these things, to reflect on their relationship to God and His Word and their dependence on Him by faith or their independence from Him as they walk by sight. And it's a thing we should remember because what, is, what, what was to Israel symbolic should be also priority to us as we consider our walk with the Lord. Well, that led to the next feast, the Day of Atonement, as they considered. And no, I, and I don't have any question that during that 10 days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, the reflection, no doubt, may, should have gone or ought to have gone on as they considered the coming day when God was going to deal with their sins. And one commentator pointed out that in some ways that Israel, if they had been rebellious against God, would consider, is God going to accept this atonement, this covering for our sin that is going to occur on this day? 
Well, we're going to look over to Leviticus chapter 16 because there we find the detail. It's mentioned here in verse 26. Um, we can, you can read that at your leisure, but let's get the full scoop. Leviticus 16, as God lays, lays it out in, in quite a bit of detail. And I think it's important because this will lay the, lay the groundwork for the lesson we're learning today. Then they're just going to read through here and, uh, and just take notes here along the way. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, and he was the high priest, to not to come at just any time into the holy place, but inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for he will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now, what he's referring here to is, the, if it's for someone may not know, is their Israel's worship centered around the tabernacle, didn't it? The tabernacle was a big tent. It was really a, 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 a inner court that was uh, outer court that was surrounded by fabric walls with one entrance that had the altar in it where they sacrificed the animals. And within that court was was a tent that was made up of two sections. We call it the the, the holy place and the holiest of all. And the holiest of all was between the holy place and the holiest of all was that vent, the, excuse me, that veil, that. Veil was rent. I was kind of combining my two words today, getting ahead of myself. That veil that was rent, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil separated, really separated man from God because inside that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a place where God's presence dwelt amongst men. It was indicated by that pillar of fire by night that, that, that exuded from that place and the, the cloud of smoke by day. God's presence among them. And so Aaron was told he could only approach God once a year on the appointed day, which really leaves for us this, this idea of there's only one way to God. And he's very specific in this, in this chapter. Because here they're dealing with the sins, of national sins of Israel for the year, and God's very specific that there's only one way to approach him at the appointed time. And, and, and thus Aaron, verse 3, shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull. And what we find here in verses 3 through 6 is Aaron was going to gather then the animals to be offered on this day. Verse 3 Aaron, Aaron is to come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the, whole, put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with the linen sash and, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering, and Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And so Aaron was to gather these animals, the, the bull for himself and his household and the other animals, and he was to put on clean garments and wash in pure water. And that was symbolic of, of symbolic purity, of ritualistic purity as he approached God, to become clean before God. And... And it may, it's significant to remember that the word atonement simply means a covering. It means to, to just a cover. And, and that's what these animals provided. It was a covering for, the, for, the, for, the, for this year till the next of the sins of Israel. It's much like sweeping them under the, under the carpet. But it sets forth a lesson, doesn't it? That the innocent can die for the guilty and God's requirement for a penalty for sin. Well, verse 7, we find here the, the two goats mentioned. Let's read. It says, He shall take two goats and prepare, present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. 
And then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. But Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be, be the scapegoat shall be the presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it. And he shall go as the scapegoat in the wilderness. And so we have the two goats here mentioned, one for a sin offering and one that would symbolically carry Israel's sins away into the, into the wilderness. These were, these were object lessons, were, were, were they not? And then in verse 11, he gets into the instructions, a little more detail in regards to the bull offering. Let's keep reading. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. And so we find here these instructions. The mercy seat that's mentioned here is a covering was for the box that was called the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-covered box that was, that was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, in the key piece of furniture was this mercy seat. It was a gold cover that covered the mercy seat. And it, uh, that word mercy seat also means the seat of propitiation. And that's why it's significant. The word we see in the New Testament that, that is equivalent of that is means to be satisfied. It's a seat of satisfaction. And that's why the blood was sprinkled there, because it satisfied the wrath of God for another year. Then we go on, if we keep reading here, we find the goat, verse 15, where it says, did I skip verse 16? I think, he's, I think I did. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then, verse 15, he shall take, he'll kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring his blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Then sh there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. You might ask why is God not only offering a sin for the sins of the people but also making atonement for the the tabernacle and its furnishings. And it's to remind them that the stink of sin affects everything in its path. And, the, and it ha affects everything around it. And so God is teaching them the important lessons of purity. In verse 20, we find then this other goat, the scapegoat, who thinks he's going to escape. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And so you get the picture. Aaron 
identifies with a goat, confesses the sins of Israel on it, and it goes off into an uninhabited land, no doubt, to be destroyed. That's a quick look at the Day of Atonement. The rest are some other details. But I want to stop there and, and, and recognize how beautifully this pictures the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? And what he's accomplished for us in taking our sins away. The underlying lesson in this feast is the necessity of a sacrifice. It becomes quite obvious that all the efforts putting into offering the blood, the killing the animals, the innocent dying for the guilty, um, uh, teaches us that, that uh, there God takes sin seriously. And that sin requires a penalty. The Bible says, the souls that sin, it shall die, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And because sin is a violation of God's word, of God's character, we, a, a penalty is required. And just as Israel needed atonement for sins past, needed sins dealt with, so you, you and I as well need deliverance from the curse of sin, the condemnation of sin in our lives. And we know that was provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, because in Hebrews chapter 9, we find a comparison. Here's where the lesson comes over to the New Testament. And as we've studied the Feast of Israel, we've seen there has been a New Testament counterpart. We've seen the picture or the type created in the Old Testament by way of these Feasts of Israel fulfilled in the New Testament. And here it becomes very clear that the fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to read through here and just draw some conclusions. One thing you will recognize as we go through here is that what the writer of Hebrews is expressing is that the, that the cross of Christ is better. It's better than what we just read about because it's the fulfillment of it. And the reason this was written because Hebrews believers, Jewish believers, some were still clinging to this Old Testament sacrificial system as an atonement. And the point here is to make it clear that that, that, that business has been put out of business because Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross. Let's read verse 1. Hebrews 9, it says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. The first covenant was the Mosaic covenant, was all the, all the sacrifices we were just reading about. And verse 2 says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, and the table and the showbread, that is the holy place, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had man, the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, and neither will I for the time being. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. That's the Day of Atonement, which we're reading about but not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And, and what he's saying here is not that God only forgives sins that are committed in ignorance. What he's saying is he's, he's dealing with the sins that people have forgotten about, people were not unaware of. They, they committed ignorantly. And that's really true in our lives. And we need to recognize that there's oftentimes sins in our lives that we aren't even aware of. Attitudes, actions, things we do and that, are, that aren't right before God, that God deals with. And we know in 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, God cleanses us and from all unrighteousness, even the things we're unaware of, and that's kind of the, the view here. It's to deal with the sins that had not been dealt with for the year. Verse 8, now the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, God's presence, 
was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. And this passage is going to make it clear that these offerings didn't really accomplish the ultimate objective of, of, of allowing us access to the presence of God. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time. It was that picture, that type, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances and poles until the time of reformation. What he's saying is those bloods of bulls and goats could never clean the conscience. They covered sin for another year. But another year they had to deal with it again. And another year they had to deal with it again. It never fully cleaned the conscience or took away the guilt. Did it? But, love that word but. There's a contrast, word of contrast in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of his creation, this creation, not with the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And so Paul, here, if you wrote Hebrews, by the way, makes a summary statement in regards to this chapter. This is, what, this is the point he's driving at. Christ took his own blood, he took on his body, and he paid for our sins, and he obtained what these animals could not obtain, eternal redemption, eternal salvation. Verse 15, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, wonderful words, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. That's, in other words, he fulfilled the picture. The lambs and goats and bulls they, they picked were, were spotless. They were, they were, they were, they were the pre premium animals. And Jesus was without spot. That means he was without sin. He was the perfect sacrifice for us because he didn't have to pay for his own sins. So he offered himself without spot to God, but he cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's a difference. Because Christ paid for sins once and for all and forever so that that debt was settled, we could be forgiven and cleansed. Guilt can be taken away. Because Jesus bore our guilt on the cross. That's the difference. In the Old Testament... They, they, their, their guilt was never, never cleansed away. Their conscience was always guilty. But we are forgiven. We are accepted in the beloved one if you put your faith in Christ. Verse 15, for this reason he is mediator of the new covenant, that is the New Testament period, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And so not only are we cleansed of our guilt, we receive the promise of eternal inheritance, eternal life. And that's what God seeks to accomplish. That's the reason Christ went to the cross, to die for you and I because his sacrifice is better. It accomplished what, these, what the Day of Atonement could never, ever accomplish. If you jump down to verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of an another. Then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and has appointed man for men to die once, but after this a judgment. So Christ was offered once. That becomes a key word as we continue through this passage. Once, once, once. He offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear the second time apart from sin for salvation. Once. Jesus offered it once. And so this Feast of 
trumpets leading up to the Day of Atonement was a picture of better things to come, of the person of Christ who would took, take on flesh, who would take on a body. Hebrews 2 tells, tells us that, that he partook of flesh and blood so that he could be our helper, our savior, our redeemer. And when he died on the cross, God laid on him the iniquity of us all, and it was a one-time forever sacrifice, and that's why God was satisfied once and for all. You know, there are many people today who think that they have to help God out in taking care of their sin problems. They think they can appease God through their good works, their best efforts. You know, they can believe in God plus do the best they can. And when you ask somebody about how do you think you get to heaven, that's often the answer you'll get. Well, I've got to go to church. I've got to believe in God and I've got to do my part, do the best. But that's why the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not, that's not how we, how, that, that never resolved the this, this, this sin problem. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. That's like, you know, getting a speeding ticket, which I don't remember if I ever really ever had one. <laughs> but that's like thinking, okay, if I drive 55 the rest of my life, I shouldn't have to pay that fine. That going to work? That's not going to work, is it? Someday you're going to get pulled over because they're going to run your plate and realize that you have a fine to pay. And maybe a license revoked if you didn't pay the fine. I don't care if you drive... Don't, if, you, if you don't drive 55.1 the rest of your life, that penalty is never going to be gone. Yet people think that, well, yeah, I've offended a God, but if I do good and give money and do my part, God will forget the rest. No. no God, our justice system is based on the, on the justice of God. A penalty had to be paid. In the Old Testament, it was a, it was a covering of animals that pointed forward to the better and final and once and for all sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. It is death alone that resolves the penalty of sin, and that death was paid by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all. Verse 1 of chapter 10 says this, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, notice they were a shadow. This day of atonement we studied was a shadow, not the very image, not the reality. And they could never, with these same sacrifices, which they offered year by year, make those who approach perfect. They couldn't perfect them. They couldn't cleanse their conscience. They couldn't offer forgiveness. For then they would not have ceased, when they have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, the remembrance of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Jesus' body took care of of that problem. And that's why he says, in verse, jumping on to verse 10, by that will, this New Testament contract God has made with us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once, once, once. Verse 12, but this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. What a beautiful picture the Day of Atonement sets for us because when we deal with the problem of guilt of sin and are standing before a holy God, we, when we consider this passage, we have to ask ourselves, what's left to accomplish? What's left? Jesus paid it all. Someone once told me that, you know, that, that they were understanding the message of salvation by faith alone, but they could not let, let go of their baptism as a means of of entering the family of God. And I asked them, and after considering passages like this, I asked the person, I said, well, who, who paid for sin on the cross? 
Well, Jesus did. The blood of Jesus washed away our sins. How many did he take care of? All of them. What's that leave for baptism to accomplish? To wash away. We're not saved by our works or by our religious efforts. We're saved by faith alone in Christ. There's nothing left but to rest in his provision for us. Galatians 2.16 says this, knowing that a man is not justified before God, that is, by the works of the law, but instead by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 12 and 13, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life and that you might continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And the reason we can know we have eternal life and we can sit here today rejoice together in, in these chapters in the all-sufficient death of Christ is because he completely paid the price. The debt has been paid. And when we rest in that debt paid for us and we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, it's settled. It's done. It's complete. Sins are forgiven. Guilt is cleansed. My eternity is sure. And I can know. Not because I'm so faithful, but because Jesus paid it all. And we sit here this morning on one side of the cross or other. Do we have, have we put our faith in Christ alone? And if you have, 2 Corinthians 5 points out, there's this love that should motivate us to follow him. It should bring us back to the day, to the Feast of Trumpets, as we consider our walk with him and and 2 Corinthians 5 says the love of Christ is what constrains us, what keeps us on track as we consider this great love for him. Let's pray. Father, uh, somewhat tedious today as we go through the details that you established in these Old Testament feasts, Father, but they're there for a reason. Because they in indicate to us that there is only one way that we can be made right with our God. There's only one way we can get to heaven. Only one way we can be forgiven. And that is through the once and for all and final sacrifice of Christ. Thank you that that debt was paid by you. Our, our, our assurance and our hope rests fully upon the work of the cross and your promise based on the cross that if we believe on him, we'd have everlasting life. So thank you for these things. May they encourage our hearts today for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.